I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Lance Spitzner. Lance is the director of the SAN Security Awareness Program. Lance has over 20 years of security experience in cyber threat research, awareness, and training. He invented the concept of HoneyNets, founded the HoneyNet Project, and published three security books. Lance has worked and consulted in over 25 countries and helped over 350 organizations plan, maintain, and measure their security awareness programs. In addition, Lance is a member of the Board of Directors for the National Cybersecurity Alliance, a frequent presenter, serial tweeter, and works on numerous security security projects. Before working in information security, Lance served as an armor officer in the Army's Rapid Deployment Force and earned his MBA from the University of Illinois. In this episode, we discuss moving from technical to human security controls, designing an effective security awareness program, changing human behavior, metrics to use in your security awareness program, what is different with IoT security, the SANS 2017 Security Awareness Report, picking organizational leads for training programs, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Lance, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews today. How are you? Just fine. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks. And, you know, before we jump into your background, I wanted to kind of dive into what your focus has been recently in securing the human and why so much of your focus in the past seven years been on security awareness and security awareness training? Sure. So really my background, I first started 20 plus years ago on the technical side. So big on firewalls, forensics, honeypots, cyber intelligence, so got a really good understanding of the capabilities and value add of technology, but really also the limitations. And that hit home with the HoneyNet project. So for about seven to 10 years, I was very active in a community of honeypot deployments. And the primary purpose of that is cyber intelligence, learning about the bad guy. And starting around 2004, 2005, I started seeing a shift where the bad guys weren't hacking technology, but hacking people. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Over the years, we've become very good at using technology to secure technology. And bad guys, they're human. They're always going to go in the easiest way possible. So in many ways, we have, by our focus on technology, forced the bad guys to target the human element because we've done so little to secure people. So through my work through the HoneyNet project and cyber intelligence, I really saw this fundamental shift where the bad guys stopped focusing really on technology, but more on the human element. So I felt if I wanted to make a little dent in the universe, I needed to shift my focus. So that's why really my passion for the past almost 10 years now has been on the human side, because that's where I feel we can really make the biggest difference. And do you feel that you're making strides in those areas? Oh, gosh, absolutely. I mean, the, the interest and awareness in the human element has just exploded. 
So five, 10 years ago, you would have to explain to leaders and quite often other security professionals why the human side was important. Kind of reminded me where cybersecurity was 20 years ago. I remember 20 years ago, going into leaders and having to explain why this whole security thing was important. Nobody cared about it. Obviously, that's not the case anymore today. Five years ago, five years ago, I would struggle with the same thing on the human side. Far too often, people perceive security as purely bits and bytes. While humans interact with technology at every point, every level, so quite often we have to take humans into consideration also. So I'm just starting to see organizations really reboot their awareness programs and going beyond just compliance once a year death by PowerPoint or once a year videos and really changing their focus to actually changing human behavior and ultimately human culture and seeing organizations around the world really do it. Yeah, and, and just so we, we were kind of clear on some of the terminology, how would you separate the difference that's awareness, training, and education? Well, it depends who you're talking to. So if you're using the NIST learning continuum, and for your European listeners, Anissa uses the same thing, the NIST learning continuum actually uses those three terms, awareness, training, and education. So sometimes I'll refer, refer to that. Now, other people use different terms. Awareness, the basic level, is you're not teaching anything new. They're already People already know how to use email. You're just changing behavior so they use it more securely. Training, by the NIST definition, is teaching new skills, such as how to detect if a um, system is compromised by looking for you know, unusual processes or teaching developers secure coding based on the OWASP top 10. Education is a body of knowledge. Ultimately though, I'm less concerned about what do you call it, you know, awareness, training, education, things like that, and more focused on ultimately what's the goal. The goal is to change human behavior and ultimately the culture of the organization. Right, and as part of that, you've uh, you with others have kind of developed this five stages of the security awareness model. Uh, can you touch on those different areas, kind of what they are, and where do most organizations kind of fall that you see? Sure. So one of the things we did is created this very simplistic maturity model to help organizations identify where their program is, where they want to go, and how to get there. So we worked with about 200 security awareness officers to come to a consensus on what this model should look like. And the model goes obviously like most models, um, five stages from least mature to most mature. And surprisingly, <coughs> first stage is having no program. Second stage is having a compliance-driven program. Now compliance is important. A lot of organizations can't operate unless they're compliant. So what ends up happening here is this. Compliance programs are where, this is where awareness traditionally gets a bad reputation, and deservedly so. That's that once a year death by PowerPoint, or once a year, you know, videos. Nobody cares if you change behavior. Nobody cares if the employees are even listening. The auditors just want to see you're doing it to check the box. So my focus has really been taking organizations beyond that second stage to stages three, four, and five. In those stages, stage three is you're changing behavior. You can change behavior within days. 
Then stage four is changing culture. That's how people's attitudes, beliefs, and perceptions. That at an organizational level takes years, on average three to 10 years, depending on the complexity and size of your organization, um, how old your culture is, things like that. Mm -hmm. And then the final stage is you know, having a strong metrics framework. Now metrics are an important part of every stage. All we're saying is to have a truly mature program. You're not only changing behavior, you're not only changing culture, but you've got the metrics to demonstrate that change. So with many of these organizations that you uh, have consultant with, and it, if they if they come to you and say, hey, listen, we, we need to start a effective program. So it's kind of a two-part question. If you had to start a program, where do they start? And what are some of the basic aspects they should try to achieve and strive to achieve for as their program matures? Sure. So, I mean, obviously we have to understand there is no beginning or end to the awareness program. Well, I should say there's really no end. As long as you have people, you should have a program. I mean, just think about it. With computers, you don't secure a computer and go, oh, I'm done. I don't have to worry about it anymore. Uh, with computers, you're always updating them, patching them, tweaking them. It's a constant ongoing process. So you have to understand it's the same with people. Computers store, process, and transfer information. People store, process, and transfer information. So what ends up happening is we have to keep them active just like computers. But I active always touching them. So the first thing is, you know, we'll always have to be reaching out to them. And then when you said, well, where do you start? At the most simplistic level, you really start with three basic questions. Whose behavior do you want to change? What behaviors do you want to change? And then how are you going to change those behaviors? So who is all about identifying your different target groups, understanding them, their risks? The what part is prioritizing your risks. Too many awareness programs fail by trying to change all the behaviors. That's not possible. You need to prioritize your human risks and identify the fewest behaviors that will manage those human risks. The fewer behaviors you teach, the more likely you're going to change them. And that's hard. In fact, one of the hardest parts I've learned about awareness is not deciding what I'm going to teach. It's deciding what I'm going to cut and not teach. And then finally, how? And this is where so many awareness programs fail because they're ran by geeks. Geeks like me, we're good at understanding technology and risks. Geeks like me, we tend to be not the best communicators, not the best in understanding behavior, culture, emotion. And how is all about communication. How do we communicate this change in behavior? And this is why sometimes I tend to find the best security awareness officers don't have a security background, but have a marketing background, sales, communications. English. I've seen English teachers make wonderful awareness officers. So back to your question, where to start? Three fundamental questions, who, what, and how. Gotcha, and you know, cost is always an issue. Now the problem with, Information security—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a cost center, and sometimes it's a shared cost between multiple depart multiple departments within inside of an organization. Um, so, you know, a lot of the security directors I've talked to said, you know, God, we want to do something, but we just don't know how to budget for it. Is it going to be expensive? And you know, can security awareness training be done inexpensively? Absolutely. In fact, based on our annual security awareness report, what we found is the key metric is not how big your budget is but how much time is dedicated to your awareness program. 
So far too often, awareness programs are dead, uh, ran by people where awareness is a part-time job. So typically, we'll see an awareness program start by somebody in security going, you know what? We, we, we got to do this awareness thing. Everybody's doing it. So, you know, Bob, you know, our IT analyst, we know you're doing a lot, but tell you what, you're also now in charge of our awareness program. So Bob, who spends 15% of his time doing awareness, um, wonders why he struggles or his awareness program fails. So I can always tell how successful awareness program is going to be by my first question. How many people are dedicated to your awareness program and how much of their time? And we found that you need a minimum of 1.4 FTEs running an awareness program to really start making a dent. I mean, one of my biggest frustrations is this. I'll go into organizations and they'll have 50 security people. And out of those 50, only 0.3 are involved in awareness. And then they wonder why people aren't changing behavior. If we treat people like an operating system on how many people, how many security professionals are dedicated to securing your operating systems? Well, let's perhaps consider maybe having that many people dedicated to securing your people also. So what we tend to find is budget is not the biggest limiter, but how much time and resources um, staff-wise is dedicated to the program. Gotcha. No, that, that makes sense. It's all about uh, kind of resource allocation and setting goals and, and defining it in, in risk management terms. I think, uh, as you said before, too much of um, a lot of security and information security comes from the technical side. And translating that to the business can be a challenge because business likes to talk about risk uh, while we like talk about bits and bytes. It's, it's translating to the, the, upper, uh, the upper levels of the organization what, what the importance is and why it's a risk management issue. Exactly. And like you said, you bring up a good point. Quite often, sometimes the biggest blocker I find to human security are other security professionals. They live and breathe technology bits and bytes. So sometimes if they can't perceive how the human element is involved in security. The other thing I tend to find, which really frustrates me, is technology folks would say, look, well, if we had the technology perfect, then the human could do whatever they want and we wouldn't have to worry about it. Well, two massive fallacies for that. First of all, we've been struggling to make technology perfect for 20 years. It has never happened, it never will. So we have to accept that fact. But two, theoretically, even in a perfect world, when you get technology perfect, the bad guys will still figure it out. So I've had people tell me, look, we have technology implemented that can stop any and every phishing attack known to man. I said, that's wonderful. How do you filter a phone call? Or they'll say, Hey, we've got our email locked down. That's wonderful. What about when the bad guys target your executive's Gmail account at home? Or what about people, what they're doing on social media or physical interactions and they're traveling? So we have to understand, A, technology will never be perfect in any way. B, even theoretically, if technology was perfect, the human still plays a critical role. And keep in mind, it's just not prevention, but detection and response. Once again, the Verizon DBIR, has repeatedly found, and once again, they stated in the 2017 report, that when it came to detecting incidents, when people detected them internally, employees were more likely, more effective, and more often detected internal incidents than any technology. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny when I do security awareness training, I like to refer to the users as, you know, uh, the best detection endpoint you know, capabilities an organization has. Uh, but the challenge I found, and I'm curious if you've seen this in other organizations as well, is because of the IT help desk culture, where users are, feel bad about going to the IT department because they get yelled at or talked down to or they maybe don't understand the technology, they don't always feel comfortable being forthright about man, my screen just flashed, or I walked away, locked it, I came back, it's unlocked, or I clicked on something, but I don't want to tell somebody. It's that, that fear they're going to get in trouble. Do you see that in a lot of organizations as well? Yeah, and it's not so much. It's the root problem goes once again to, remember I mentioned earlier the how part, where so many awareness programs are ran by security geeks. And we can discuss terms in very confusing, technical, or intimidating terms. So we don't mean to, but the security community can often make cybersecurity scary or intimidating. And this is why I go back to the whole idea that sometimes the best awareness programs are, are ran by people with very strong soft skills, the communications background and things like that. First of all, they understand this technology thing can be soft, I mean, scary or confusing or intimidating, and they can help translate security into easy to understand terms that's no longer scary or intimidating. So this comes back to, once again, the fundamental issue of poor communication. Gotcha. You know, and when it, when it kind of comes to communicating the message, um, I, I, I saw recently in a dark reading article where you talked about the three C's, and I know communication was a part of it. What, what, are, what are the three C's of security awareness and kind of what they are? Well, this comes back. Well, the three C's are what I call communication, collaboration, and culture. Because quite often when I see awareness programs fail, it's not because of technology. It's not because of the risks. or It's those three C's. You know, your ability to communicate. You have to collaborate. You have to work with help desk, human resources, marketing, communications. You have to have, be able to build partnerships and work with people. And then you have to understand culture, emotion, perceptions, attitudes, and beliefs. One of the things I kind of joke, but I say it with all seriousness too, is if you don't like people, you shouldn't be in security awareness. Now, if you think about it, well, quite often there's this conception, and sometimes it's true, you know, security geeks don't like interacting with people. They like interacting with technology. And that's wonderful. Leave them in those roles of technology. But don't force a geek who does not like interacting with people out of his comfort zone and then also then put him in a role where his primary job is interacting with people. So if you think about it, awareness is a very people-focused position. So one of the most successful ways I see well, organizations do awareness programs is they will assign or dedicate somebody from the communications department, embed them within the security team, and then their role is to communicate security as representing the security team to the rest of the organization. Gotcha. And a lot of that you know, certainly goes to understanding the culture of the firm and your organization, um, because yep. that's that's a big part. And it's funny, you know, I'll kind of share a story. So, I was dealing with an organization that's a law firm and, you know, lawyers getting them in a room and talking about security awareness training takes them away from billing, which is what they love doing. Um, but what I found interesting was as we talked about, you know, the issues of reporting and how to raise issues when you get a phishing email. I did the training about six months or a year later as a follow up and I found it was uh, really successful. And I asked, well, the IT manager, why? And he said, well, the odd thing is 
the attorneys became extremely competitive. Uh, because they're such type A people, they wanted to be the first ones to report a phishing attack on the on the firm before anybody else did. They wanted to be before all their 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 uh, you know colleagues. So it's interesting how um, culture can play a big role in shaping that, but also. To, to incentivize people. So how, what, what are some of the other tools that you can kind of incentivize within a culture to get people to be, you know, active participants in their organization security? Well, keep in mind, once again, ultimately the goal is to change behavior. That's the definition of success. What you end up doing is to define success of the organization is which human risks do you care about? Which behaviors manage those risks? and then focus on changing those behaviors. That also aligns well with metrics. I mean, people ask me, Lance, what should I be measuring? They say, ooh, wrong question. Question is what behaviors do you care about? Then figure out how to measure that. So what ends up happening in relation to culture is when it becomes the behavior change, where we see most effective is it's not so much the uh, tools. It's once again how you communicate it. And where we do, how we approach that is this, and this is nothing radical or new, is the behaviors you teach are not about securing the organization. They're about securing you. Think about it. The technology you use at work, same as at home. The risks you face at work, same as at home. So why not communicate your awareness program about all about securing you, the individual? So you answer the question, what's in it for me? As a result, people are far more likely to be engaged, far more likely to listen, and far more likely to change behavior. The beauty of it is now is now they're exhibiting the same set of behaviors both at home and at work. So regardless of where they are, security is part of their DNA. So that catch, that hook, one method, and there's a variety, one method is focus on personal benefit. Gotcha. No, that that obviously, you know, people... Uh... People like things that work in their favor. <laughs> you know, that helps change their behavior. Um, and when it comes to kind of delivery of uh, some of these training programs, do you think it's maybe better or worse or maybe timing when it comes to the difference between in-person training or computer-based training? Well, once again, that comes back to culture. So one of the key drivers we tend to find is my question would be what generation? Now, this is a generalization. Um, but older generation may prefer more traditional in-person format during work hours, things like that, where millennials, younger generation, they prefer to use technology to consume their training. They want to do it on their own schedule. Maybe they want to do it on the train during lunch or during home. So quite often you have to provide the same content in multiple different ways because different people learn or consume content in different ways. Gotcha. And and when it does come to, you know, as you mature a program, you do build those metrics. And you said before, you know, certainly it's going to depend on the needs of the organization. But what are some ways that an organization can kind of gather those metrics to have those KPIs and measurements of what's working and not? Well, there's two general buckets of metrics when it comes to the human side. And one is what I call compliance metrics and impact metrics. Compliance metrics are what you traditionally think of. How many people took the training? How many lunch and learns we had? How many newsletters we put out? How many posters we put out? Things like that. It's the type of question an auditor would ask. And they're important because compliance is important. But it does not answer the question, well, are we winning? Are we having an impact? And that, once again, comes back to the behaviors. And so I, I would always start with, what behaviors do you care about? Are we changing those behaviors? 
And can you show or demonstrate that change? The key to metrics fundamentally is don't have a lot of metrics for the purpose of metrics. Start with what I, um, Lance Hyden wrote a wonderful book called People-Centric Security and also IT Security Metrics, so a PhD in social science. And he defines really good metrics as are they useful? So just focus on a few key useful metrics and then over time you can add and grow them. That's why so many people talk about phishing. Phishing is a key human risk most organizations are current, cur concerned about, so they want to manage, but it's also one that's very easy to measure. Just send out a lot of phishing emails, see who clicks, and see who reports. So it's a common metric, but it's only one metric because there are many behaviors you may want to measure, data destruction, passwords, things like that. Gotcha. And when it does come to phishing, I've seen some organizations um... – you know, start recording repeat offenders <laughs> to say somebody fails three to four phishing tests a year. Do you feel there should be consequences for those users where, um, you know, maybe part of that organizational culture, they get written up or there's something that goes in their quote unquote permanent record? So what we're, you're tending to find is the organizations which, with the more mature awareness programs would never take that approach. So what ends up happening is this is we all have a bad day. We can all fall victim to a phishing assessment. In fact, what I like to see is new hires falling victim to a phishing assessment because when they fall victim, it really burns into their mind and it's really training. So when somebody falls victim once, that's a wonderful thing because that's a training moment. They're far more likely to remember and they're far less likely to fall victim. The one issue you have are the repeat offenders, people who continually fall victim each month and represent a high risk to your organization. For those, then you need to do something specific, and that really depends on the culture of your organization. What I tend to find is organizations have an escalating process. The more often you fall victim, the more severe the consequences, which can start off as nothing more than having to talk to your boss to the most severe you're talking to HR. But we want to ensure that we're not developing a system of penalizing people. We want to have cybersecurity perceived as friendly enabler. Um, and that's why we start off with focusing, hey, this is just training. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Because, you, again, if we're trying to change the culture um, and make people uh, feel that they're part of that culture, uh, you know, when, when they feel uh, in trouble all the time, they're, they're less likely to be involved. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And, and so there's, I mean, there's obviously there's lots of different ways to do um, simulated attacks uh, that, that I've done with organizations, uh, phishing, watering hole tests. Um, but, you know, we've seen USB drops um, kind of be less of a favor these days. And it was something that was, it was commonly done in the past. What are your thoughts on that? I saw a recent tweet that you had on that. And I was kind of curious what, are, you know, are USB drops worth doing at an organization? Well, and it, it, it's a follow-up from one of Bruce Schneier's quotes. Bruce and I are very much aligned on this. Is first of all, focus on the key risks. There, I'm not saying that I would never say you never see a USB drop attack. What I am saying is, for most organizations, that's not a big risk. Most organizations, bad guys aren't going to bother physically walking out to your parking lot and dropping USB drives. Too much work, and most bad guys aren't local to you. What most bad guys are going to do is call on the phone, send an email, text message, social media. 
because they don't want to have to get out of their chair in St. Petersburg or Beijing or, you know, Rio or wherever, Florida. Um, long story short, vast, vast, vast majority of social engineering attacks are digitally based, not physically based, simply because physical based attacks, um, more work, more risk. Once again, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm saying less likely to happen. So for most organizations, a USB drop is not a key risk. So my frustration is pen testers will go out, drop the uh, USB drives, and then people fall victim. They insert them and the pen testers start running around. You're stupid. You're dumb. You fell victim. I mean, the article that I quoted in there literally said 53% of people dumb enough to insert a USB drive. Right. So let's begin by A, insulting and tricking the very people we try to help. So let's start on the most prevalent high probability risks, like phishing, like phone calls, and things along those lines. And then let's get them on our side. Now we're a team, we're in this together. The other problem you can have with USB drops or very targeted, very spear phishing like emails is theoretically, yes, those attacks are possible. But you have to ask yourself, am I doing more harm than good by destroying the culture, cre creating a culture of strong distrust where people no longer work together, creating a toxic environment where people don't like security? So theoretically, you're still addressing those risks, but we have to ask, are we doing more harm than good? Yeah, I find it interesting when I deal with some organizations we've done phishing tests, they say, you know, we'll do like say an Amazon gift card or something like that. And they say, that's just too obvious. Our users are not going to fall for that. And I'm like, but that's the point. That's what the bad guys are doing. I can craft something that can be really deceptive and, and, and trick the user, but that's not going to win them over onto our side. Um, and, and really, we want to be demonstrative of the fact that, yeah, the attackers are going to take the path of least resistance. They're not you know, going, they don't want to spend a lot of time and effort. <laughs> you are so spot on. So um, what's really neat is at SANS, we have a huge pool of the world's best instructors. And whenever I need to focus on a behavior, I can go to these guys and ask them based on their skills and experience, what behavior should I be focusing on? And what's neat is we have two instructors at SANS that worked for the NSA's TAO office. So when you're talking about targeted attackers, APT or stuff, that was their job. Their job was to hack other countries. And they will tell you precisely the same thing. They said, at the end of the day, all these guys, they go home, they have mortgages, they have families, they have spouses. They want to get their job done and get what they need and get home as easy as possible. So yes, there's O-Day. Yes, there's these advanced USB drops and stuff like that. But if they can just call somebody and get what they want, they're just going to pick up the phone. Yeah, exactly. Now, we've certainly seen a lot of uh, emerging technology. You know, the big the big thing certainly have been, and we've probably danced around a little bit, but, you know, certainly with ransomware, that's been an issue, usually with phishing and, and uh, different types of exploits. But, you know, there's, there's newer things that are coming out that are also user technology that I'm curious what your thoughts are. You know, when we talk about Internet of Things and, and all these different devices, um, are those going to pose some different or maybe I don't know, unique security awareness challenges when we have to address those? Absolutely not. So the basics of security, cybersecurity uh, behaviors haven't changed for years. I mean, people are running around screaming ransomware, ransomware. Oh my God, what do we do? Well, actually, don't get infected. And those are the same behaviors that we've been talking about for 10, 20 years, things along those lines. 
So what ends up happening? I mean, you bring up Internet of Things. Well, from a you know an employee's a person's perspective, you really only need to do two things for Internet of Things: make sure you've got a good, unique password, and you keep it updated. You know how you keep your computer secure? Good, unique password, keep it updated. How do you keep your mobile device secure? Good password, keep it updated. The security issues um, you have from an IoT perspective are primarily developer-driven. So the vendors have to get their act together. There's not a lot of different or unique things we have to tell people. Yeah, exactly. And with that, it's saying, look, it's whether it's a computer or phone, it's something digital where you're inputting and interacting with. There's a level of risk. You need to understand that risk and know how to mitigate it appropriately. There you go. There we go. You figured out the Internet of uh, Things security. (laughs) So uh, one of the things I wanted to touch on, too, is like, you know, we talked about SANS. How did how did you get involved with SANS originally? Well, I've been involved with them for over 20 years. I actually started as an instructor at SANS in 1999, um, doing a lot of training and work with Chris Brenton on firewalls. However, I kind of broke off with SANS and went with my own way, starting the HoneyNet project and doing a lot of cyber intelligence work with a variety of organizations. And then as a result of that cyber intelligence work, as I mentioned earlier, that's when I broke off once again and really decided I need to focus on the human side. So I started my own company focusing on human security about 2007. And our paths with SANS crossed again. And because I had worked with SANS in the past and SANS was looking to expand their training and awareness, it was kind of a it was a wonderful fit. So in 2010, we merged what I had done and what they had done into what you now see as securing the human. So I have been very happily and enjoying my work with SANS since, oh my gosh, that makes it seven years now, 2010. Yeah, and I think the, uh, and, and kudos to you on securing the human. Um, you know, it, it's it's always a resource that I, I kind of give my clients. <laughs> I'm saying, you know, you if, if you need to start somewhere with security awareness, Lance laid a lot of it out here. here. Here's where you get started and then we can talk because there's some really great roadmaps and certainly encourage a lot of people to listen there. But, there, but there's also a class that you've developed too. Is it, I believe it's 433 that, that goes into it's a two-day more in-depth program development class. Absolutely. And it's a class I absolutely, like I said, I used to teach a variety of courses for SANS, um, a lot of the technical courses, but now this is really, I'm, I'm a one trick pony now. I focus on this. I teach it about 12 times a year all over the world. We've taught well over, oh my goodness, almost 1500 uh, awareness officers. And it's a two day course on how to build you know, effective awareness programs that you can measure. And it really does a deep dive into, you know, who you should target, defining your target, how to prioritize your risk, how to effectively communicate, how to measure all of that. And then what's really neat is we've really built a community based on these awareness officers of over a thousand people now who are sharing lessons learned. So it's not so much I'm the world expert on awareness, it's that I've just worked with so many people and have stolen so many of their good ideas and then share them with others that the class is a really wonderful way to kickstart your program if you're really not sure where to start or sure how to take your program to the next level. And I, and I think you, you probably touched upon this several times uh, through this podcast, but it doesn't just have to be a technical person. It could be somebody that's in HR. It could be somebody in compliance that's uh, maybe not a technical person. It, it could be almost anybody within an organization that 
thinks in a communication mindset. Is, is that a fair assessment? Oh, absolutely. In fact, and one of the things I always start my class off is, is I ask, who are my security geeks? Who are the technical people? And they, you know, half the class will raise their hand. Then I'll start, okay, don't get cocky. Quite often, you technical people make the worst security awareness officers. Because they understand technology so well, they tend to make the worst communicators about technology because they take their perceptions and then they project those perceptions on others. They're like, you know, well, passwords, those are really easy. So I don't even need to talk about those. You know, they'll be talking about cloud not realizing people may not know what the cloud is or full disk encryption or things along two-step verification. So quite often I find the people that truly don't understand or don't have a strong security background because they don't have this curse of knowledge, they quite often have the advantage. Makes sense. And one of the other things that you've done too over the past couple of years is you certainly supplemented things with some of the other larger reports that have gone out there. Uh, which are great, great perspectives on those, uh, particularly with the Verizon DBIR, DBIR reports. But you also have the uh, security awareness report in the 2017 one just came out recently. Were there any surprises that you found this year uh, that was different than maybe past year reports? So absolutely. Um, so the whole idea behind the awareness report was to solve this problem of a lack of data when it comes to human security. I really love and respect the Verizon DBIR team. They took a problem. Hey, we don't have data on incidents and have now really given us hard data to make data-driven decisions. So the awareness report, it's in its third year. We've had data from over a thousand awareness officers and it's to help address this issue. So two key findings really from the report is, well, actually I'd say three. A, successful awareness programs are people-driven. So A, resources in staff is important. That's where I got this number of 1.4 full-time employees, FTEs. You need to have dedicated staff to running the awareness program. And this year really confirmed the findings from last year. B, communication is a key skill and not just your ability to communicate to the employees, but to senior leadership on the value of the program. But probably the biggest surprise was gender-driven. We knew women were more represented in awareness than other fields in cybersecurity. So we asked the gender of the people in awareness. And we found out women represent 30% of security awareness officers. Oh, interesting. And that was about, that's about what we thought. In fact, we thought it'd be a little bit more. That wasn't the surprise. The surprise was this. We found out that if you are say 15 or 20% of your time is dedicated to awareness, you are most likely a man. However, if you were dedicated full-time to awareness, you were most likely a woman. And we have some theories about this. First of all, that was a big surprise. And the theory after working with a variety of people is our best guess to this is this. If you're very much part-time, only 20% of your time is dedicated to awareness, what probably happened is this, somebody, some senior leader said, oh, crap, we need somebody to run this awareness thing. So, and they randomly pick a geek from the security team. Hey, you know, firewall admin, you're now also the security awareness officer. And because security technical people are predominantly men right now, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, I'm just saying it's predominantly men, then statistically speaking, that part-time person is most likely going to be a man. However, if an organization goes, 
we're going to hire somebody full-time to be this awareness role. And that one should probably be somebody with strong soft skills, especially communication. So they go out and go, hey, we want to hire a communicator. And then they, what you tend to find is if you go out and hire somebody from communications, right now that is predominantly female professionals. So you're most likely to get a woman running your awareness program. So it's interesting to see that the statistics show us if you're dedicated full-time to awareness, you're most likely a woman. Huh, that is, that is very interesting. <laughs> now, we're not saying in any way one gender is better than the other. We, none of the data is pointed in that direction. All we're saying is statistically the likelihood, the greater, the more time you spend dedicated to awareness, the more likely you're a woman. Interesting. And I know we're, we have to wrap up soon, but one of the, the things that I wanted to touch on too is, you know, certainly security doesn't stop at the office. And you mentioned this a little bit before about building it and in, ingrained into the DNA. Are there any tips that you have for creating security awareness at home with maybe kids and family? And so people, you know, kind of become uh, maybe a little bit more of a muscle memory when it comes to awareness. Yeah. One of the things we always like to stress is, really, you know, cybersecurity, it's actually not that hard. Sometimes people can get this perception, it's really confusing, you have to be an expert. Part of the problem is because we have done a bad job of communicating it. It's the fundamental basics. You know, simply, I would say the three key at-home things are keep your systems updated, good passwords, antivirus, well, actually, let's make it five things. So like I said, updated, passwords, antivirus, Common sense, all right? If it seems odd, suspicious, or too good to be true, it may be attacked. And then finally, backups. If you focus on those five fundamental keys, you're going to you know, manage 90, 95% of the risk out there. I think one of the th one of the uh, things I saw in the presentation or speech you gave too is also about uh, you know spending time with your kids with their digital devices, have them show what they're doing, and so they're, they're not off in the room and create a maybe a, a family space for the use of mobile devices? Well, on the kids' side, what I tend to find is parents think there's some type of technology they can purchase, and that will solve the risks to their kids. And unfortunately, you can't outsource parenting. Really, um, creating a secure environment for your kids' online life is all about education. You know, you want them to be good values, good behaviors in the real world. It's no different than in the physical world. And this is especially true as kids get older. So sometimes I'll see parents go, well, I've got, I've got, you know, I installed Net Nanny on my 14-year-old's mobile device. Yeah, well, that's great. But what's happening when they're on the computer issued from school? What happens when they're on the neighbor's computer, grandma's computer? What about your gaming consoles? How do you monitor or control a gaming console? So what ends up happening is you want to be talking to them and you want them to be talking to you. Uh, education and communication are key. And one of my favorite ways to, to start that discussion with kids is play the, you know, ignorant parent. You know, well, what games do kids play nowadays? What apps do you have on your phone? How do you use them? Who do you talk to? Things like that. Put them in the role of the teacher. And that can be a great way to start that dialogue. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So, so you uh, kind of get them to show you what they're doing. So it, uh, there's that, that interaction. Absolutely. Uh, well, Lance, I really, uh, really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show today. Where can people find you and where, what are you up to these days and what are you plugging? <laughs> I would say if you're interested in learning more, the blogs, we have tremendous number of resources, the Ouch Newsletter, Summits, Webcasts. 
anybody wants to learn more, just visit us at securingthehuman.sans.org. Great. Oh, yeah, I'll be sure to put the links to particularly the Ouch newsletter. I love that. It's, it's a, again, one of those things I say it's a no brainer that most organizations should uh, should have their, their employees kind of watching and, and getting. Uh, but I'll make sure I put links to that, your Twitter and securing the human on the uh, show notes. Oh, wow. Well, Doug, appreciate it. Of course. Well, Lance, uh, I really greatly enjoyed this conversation. It was a lot of great insight on securing the human. I, I appreciate you taking the time today. Anytime, Doug. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.